Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. Funny that. Hey, uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I'm a stand-up comedian here in Edinburgh, based in Edinburgh, and I do a thing here in the city called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, and what I do is I take people around the beautiful old town of Edinburgh, I show them around, I tell them about the city, and I try and make them laugh. And that is the point of this podcast, the series of podcasts, is I'm giving Scottish history the Montebank treatment. The whole point is that you'll learn a little, and you'll hopefully laugh a lot. Um, it's basically just a combination of my my two great passions in life, Scottish, uh, Scottish history and comedy, stand-up comedy, which I am missing, I must admit, I'm missing the old stand-up comedy a wee bit, like, I don't know, I don't know if I could maybe, like, invite a, a stag do from Doncaster to come and sit in my front room and heckle me while I'm recording these things, you know, just to make it feel a wee bit more authentic, you know? If this is, by the way, the first time that you've tuned in, you'd listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the start? Uh, they're not really topical, they all go in kind of chronological order. This one is episode six, and it's all about a Scottish king called William the Lion. Um, which is actually, I've heard people describe Boris Johnson as as like Boris, like a, there's a, a few comparisons out there, and obviously from the kind of Gaminati folk, where they kind of like uh, memes of Boris Johnson as a lion, I don't know, I don't know if it's because he's, you know, just lacks courage, but it's a tough one that, isn't it, because he lacks brains and he lacks a heart as well, just following fucking Dorothy Cummings on the old yellow prick road from London to Durham. Um, listen, that's the sort of thing you should expect on this podcast, all right? Um, anyway, the, today's episode, like I said, it's all about uh, William the Lion. If you're anything like me and the world's just a bit mental at the moment and you just want to kind of bury your head in the 12th century and kind of forget it's all happening, then come back, enjoy it. We're going we're gonna to stick our heads in the sand together. It's going to be good crack, I promise. Uh, right, without further ado, here's your podcast. It's all about William the Lion. Have fun out there and I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy! William the Lion is a Scottish king who lacked the subtlety, the intelligence and the statesmanship of his predecessors. His reign is marked by the fact that he achieved next to nothing and this, coupled with the fact that William had six illegitimate children, it would suggest that William the Lion and Boris the Liar have quite a lot in common in that respect. But it's an unfair comparison to make because, I mean, like William, he was every part the Scottish medieval king. He looked exactly how you imagine a medieval king would have looked at that time. He was powerfully built with long red flowing hair. And Boris, well, I mean, Christ, he just looks like a kind of dishevelled and overweight Tintin. But the real difference between the two is that it doesn't matter how many children William had, at least, you know, he acknowledged their existence. And at the end of the day, that is what separates the Rod Stewarts and the William the Lions from the Boris Johnsons of this world. King William I, or William the Lion as he's better known, is one of the least known and disregarded kings of Scotland. Uh, Peter and Fiona Somerset Fry, they describe William in their History of Scotland book as follows, right? Of this king, little can be told that is credible to himself, of advantage to Scotland, or, indeed, of interest to the reader. He reigned for almost half a century, but achieved practically nothing. Wow. Now, uh, to be fair to William, right, doing absolutely fuck all for 50 years is exactly what is expected of the monarch these days. Like, all he would, if William the Lion was about these days, all he'd have to do was spout some Vera Lynn lyrics during a pandemic and hand out a few knighthoods to some celebrity paedophiles and tax evaders, you know what I mean? Like, jobs are good in. Okay, so William, right, he, he lacked the political guile of his grandfather, David I, and he lacked the pragmatism of his brother, Malcolm IV, but he 
He was a passionate Scottish nationalist and he was determined to escape vassal rule of England and reclaim the Northumbrian lands his grandfather David I had acquired for Scotland. Now, he didn't have much success with either. In fact, his absolute commitment to Scotland's independence actually led to England having greater control over affairs in Scotland. But you know what? This podcast is a, is a massive fuck you to Peter and Fiona Somerset Fry, not just because of the ridiculous double-barreled names either, right? But because I reckon William was a good king, right? And over the next 20 minutes, I am going to rescue the good name of William the Lion. And what a name that is as well, by the way. William the Lion, like, that's a belter of a nickname to have. Like, I mind it. When I was at school, there was this kid in my class. He was known as Willie Worm, William the Worm. Well, he never ever got William, to be fair. Willie Worm. He was mostly famous for, you know, eating his hair and, and what he would, he'd jump in the back of the ice cream van and ride it from village to village. I'm pretty sure that Willie would have swapped William the Lion for Willie the Worm, you know. But he got his name, I was about to say Willie Worm there, but William the Lion got his name on account of the fact that he was the first to adopt the Lion Rampant as his royal insignia. And the Lion Rampant has become a, a beloved symbol of Scotland. It's a symbol of Scottish defiance. And I think it's great that it's attributed to William. Not just because he was a fierce Scottish nationalist, but because here's this guy, right? Like we already said, he's a fierce Scottish nationalist. He's ruled for 49 years and essentially achieved fuck all, right? If ever there was a more appropriate flag to take into Hampden Park with you, then the lion rampant is it. That It doesn't get any more Scottish than that right there, folks. William I, he ascended to the throne in 1165 at the age of 22, and... The first nine years of William's reign, they were relatively peaceful. Although as soon as he became king, William, he signalled his, his obsession regarding Northumbria and the return of the lands in the north of England to Scotland by badgering the English king, Henry II, at every opportunity. Apparently, the mere mention of William's name to Henry was enough to send him into a rage. It's a very similar reaction that I have to Ryland. And in 1174, Henry II, he was facing a rebellion that was started by his children, young Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, and his wife, Eleanor. It really was the epitome of she's turned the weans against us, that one, isn't it? It's like the Jackson 5 suddenly turning on the dad. And the rebellion started all because Henry's sons, young Henry in particular, uh, he wasn't happy with the land that daddy was giving him, right? Uh, Henry II, he just couldn't keep up. He had to invade Ireland. He had to give land and castles. He basically had to act like he was a Saudi prince buying premiership football clubs to keep his wains happy. And young, young Henry flipped his lid when King Henry II, he gave three castles to his youngest son, John. And uh, young... Young Henry's temper tantrum is basically what kicked off the rebellion. He was he was unhappy that John had given these castles, uh, sorry, Henry II had given these castles to John. Now, this is despite the fact that they used to tease John by calling him John Lackland on account of the fact that he had fuck all land, right? Which is how I imagine private school kids bully each other. Just be like, oh, here comes Tarquin, no inheritance. <laughs> like, I mind when I was at school, I had a pair of high-tech trainers, and when I walked the corridors in my secondary school, as I walked past, people would go, put your high-techs in the air, put your high-techs in the air, put your high-techs in the air. Now, that's proper bullying for you, Tarquin. Incidentally, by the way, if anyone uh, from high-tech Gola or Pony is listening to this podcast and they would be interested in sponsoring it, please get in touch because let me tell you this, 
Nobody, and I mean nobody, rocks a pair of catalogue football boots like this guy right here. William thought he could take advantage of the Swiss family rebellion by helping himself to lands that he desired in Northumbria while Henry II was distracted by the rebellion started by his, uh, by his eldest son. So against the advice of his advisors, he joined young Henry's rebellion and he was promised the lands that he desired if young Henry's rebellion was successful, which it wasn't. In the summer of 1174, William, he invaded Northumbria, but he found Newcastle too difficult to acquire. Uh, Mike Ashley was still refusing to sell. So he fell back to Alnwick Castle. And William, he's out hunting with a small number of men-at-arms at Alnwick, when through the kind of early morning mist, he sees a group of cavalry approaching. Now, at first, William thought that they were his men. But when he realises that they're English knights, William charges at them, hopelessly outnumbered. Now, in these situations, I feel like you've got to choose your words quite carefully. You know, you're 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 massively outnumbered. Your display of gallantry right now, it could go down in history. If you're killed, then you die a gallant hero, right? You've got to make sure that you have something powerful and poetic to say. Like, for example, James Douglas, right, when he was taking Robert the Bruce's heart to the Holy Land, the Holy Land as was the Bruce's wish, right? He was fighting the Moors in the south, of, the south of Spain and facing his imminent death, he took the Bruce's heart, he threw it in front of him and he shouted, Onwards, brave heart! And started charging towards the enemy. Words that have gone down in Scottish history. Words that have even inspired a film about the completely wrong Scottish patriot going to show just how inaccurate that film that even the bloody title is wrong. Now what did William say? He charged towards the knights, say, the knights saying now we'll see which of us is good knights. Uh, it's, it's not exactly yippee-ki-yay motherfuckers is it? But uh, anyway they did find out who the good knights were because William he was captured tied underneath his horse and taken to Henry II at Northampton, who could not believe his luck. Henry had William sent to a dungeon in Normandy for five months, which was utter hell, you know, like poor William, he was forced to choose between the Cavernet Sauvignon and the Pinot Noir. At some points he was even reduced to drinking Shiraz, it was an absolute nightmare for the poor guy. And when he was eventually released in December 1174, the condition of his release was that William would have to pay explicit homage to Henry II, not just for himself, but for the entire Kingdom of Scotland. Henry II gave himself the title Overlord of Scotland, which is a title that the Tories are trying to bring back in the 21st century. The whole thing basically meant that Scotland was now under the direct lordship of England. William was essentially a subject of Henry's. English garrisons, they were installed at Berwick, Edinburgh, Jedburgh, Roxburgh and Stirling castles. And right up until Henry II's death in 1189, he extracted every last bit of homage from William that he possibly could, tried to humiliate him at every turn. Now, the ultimate humiliation came in 1186 when Henry II actually picked William the Lion's wife for him. Now, I don't know anything about Ermengarde, right, other than the fact that she was the daughter of a minor... Norman nobleman. Now, she may well have been lovely, right? But all I'm going to say is that if you were in a situation where you got to pick your greatest enemy's wife for them, you're probably going to go down the Katie Hopkins route, aren't you? Now, the re he really took the piss, Henry, with his wedding gift, right, um, for the inverted commas happy couple, because Henry II gave the couple Edinburgh Castle 
as a wedding gift, uh, which was just absolutely taking the piss, you know. Although, to be fair, like, being given stuff that you already own is pretty standard for a wedding present, isn't it? You're like, oh, pots and pans, brilliant. Like, we were just we were just eating raw food before. This is fantastic. We can have hot food now. This is great. It was a cheap, cynical present from Henry, which uh, the most amazing thing about that is the fact that at one point, Edinburgh Castle was considered cheap. You know, it's £18 to get in the bloody thing these days. When Henry II died in 1189, England's stranglehold on Scotland loosened. This was down to the new king, Richard I, remembered more commonly as Richard the Lionheart. He was the eldest surviving son of Henry II's. And Richard, he was obsessed with going on crusade and on defending his lands in southern France, which is where he spent most of his time. Apparently, Richard only spent six months in England and mainly saw the country as a means of raising funds for his crusades. So basically, Richard was the head of an empire. He didn't live in England, but he expected English money to bail him out. Uh, basically, he was the 12th century version of Richard Branson, it would, it would seem. And just a few months after Henry's death in 1189, Richard, needing money for crusade, he gave Scotland its independence back by agreeing to sell back all of the English-held castles in Scotland. So William, he basically managed to hit the reset button. But still, he was utterly obsessed with Northumbria and still he would pester Richard about having these lands returned to him and still, like the English king that came before him, Henry II, Richard would refuse him. Richard himself died in 1199, putting down the revolt in his lands in the south of France. He was apparently hit in the shoulder by a crossbow, which it turned out had been fired by a wee boy who was avenging the death of his father and his brother who had been killed in the fighting. Uh, but instead of having the, the wee boy punished, Richard the Lionheart, he gave him a hundred shillings, ruffled his hair and told him to get himself up the road, the wee scamp. Now Richard died a few days afterwards, and as soon as he was dead, the boy was publicly flayed and hanged. And do you know, do you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of when you would misbehave in public as a wee kid, you know, and then you like, you thought you'd got away with it, uh, you'd, you'd actually forgotten about it, and then you'd get home and your mum would just absolutely tan you. I was never flayed and hanged, to be fair, but uh, anyway. With Richard dead, his brother John, good old John Lackland, he became John the First, uh, or as I prefer to call him, a King John Un. Thank you very much. And with John of the Throne, it was normal service resumed as far as William was concerned, because once again he began haranguing the English king about the return of Northumbria, but John, he was a far stickier character. He was more cunning and skillfully ruthless in the subtleties of power politics. Not only did John refuse William's requests, but in 1204 he had a castle built at Tweedmouth, on the English side of the River Tweed, and it was a purposeful attempt at menacing Berwick, which at that time was still in Scotland and was its largest and most important royal borough. William twice ordered the castle at Tweedmouth to be levelled like a kind of angry neighbour on grand designs. And this gave John the perfect excuse in 1209 to amass a large army and to march north. And with John's army at Norham, William, William in response gathered an army at Roxburgh and full-scale war looked probable. William, however, he stepped back from the brink of war. He decided to not give fight. And in August 1209, at the Treaty of Norham, William agreed to relinquish all claims to the lands in northern England. And so the Treaty of Norham, it basically it marked the end of William's life's work. He died on the 4th of December 1214 at the age of 71, having ruled for 49 years. His son Alexander became Alexander II at the age of 15, 
William and Ermengrad had had him 12 years after their marriage when William was 56 years old, which, you know, having a child at 56 is mightily, imp- mightily impressive by medieval standards. It's, it's really some going. Still nothing on Rod Stewart, obviously, you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's, he's posting incredible numbers, old Rod, but... It should be noted that William, he really wasn't as bad a king as it's made out. Like, he improved the, the feudal administration of Scotland. Uh, he extended royal authority into the Celtic North and West. And he brought the Norse provinces under under greater control. He actually died at Stirling on his way back from imposing the king's peace in Caithness. And I'm a big fan of William, you know. Like, I, like William strikes me as the, as the sort of king who could curl two... 30-yard free kicks past the English goalkeeper, only to then relinquish possession in the middle of the park and allow them to equalise in the last minute. Like, it doesn't matter what he achieved or what he got, what he was was aspiring to. He was always destined to fuck it up in the end. And, I mean, at the end of the day, what is more Scottish than that? The highlight of William's reign, and by far his greatest and lasting legacy, is Arbroath Abbey, which is on the Angus coast, about 15 miles northeast of Dundee. Now, Arbroath Abbey is where the most important document in Scottish history, the Declaration of Arbroath, was ratified on the 6th of April, 1320. Its symbolic importance was the reason why four young Scottish nationalists who stole the Stone of Destiny, or liberated, we should say, from Westminster Abbey on Christmas Eve in 1950, returned the stone wrapped in a saltire and placed in front of the high altar at Arbroath Abbey. I'll, I'll do a podcast on this in the future. It's a really, really fantastic story. But anyway, William the Lion, he founded the Abbey in 1178. Now, that was a few years after his release by Henry II. And the Abbey is dedicated to God and to Sir Thomas Becket, Archbishop and Martyr. So who was Thomas Becket? And why would a Scottish king dedicate an abbey to him. Well, Thomas Becket, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Again, you're asking why on earth would a Scottish king dedicate an abbey to the Archbishop of Canterbury? Well, the, the answer is pretty simple. It's because Henry II absolutely hated the guy. Thomas, the Becket wa- Thomas Becket was at one time the most brilliant and the most celebrated figure in Henry II's court. Henry made him Chancellor and just a few years later he made him Archbishop of Canterbury. But immediately after his promotion to Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket began to make the case for the church to have rights that were separate from the state. Now, this really pissed off Henry because he didn't like the idea of a, a powerful institution such as the church not being under his complete control. So on the 29th of December 1170, five nights they entered Canterbury Cathedral and they accused Thomas Becket of being a traitor and they murdered him in the name of the king. And his murder sent shockwaves across Europe and all of Christendom. Stories began to emerge after Thomas Becket's death of miracles occurring at his tomb. And so Thomas Becket, just a few years later, after his death, he was raised to a saint. And now Henry II was the king who had killed a saint. And Thomas Becket had been made a martyr. Henry quickly realised that the tide of opinion was firmly against him, and so in 1174, he offered penance for the killing of Thomas Becket. Now again, what has any of this got to do with Arbroath Abbey? Well, William dedicated Arbroath Abbey to Thomas Becket because Becket was the greatest symbol of defiance against the English nobility, against 
Henry II. A building dedicated in his honour would have infuriated Henry II, but in 1174, four years before the foundation of the Abbey, Henry II had offered public penance for the killing of Thomas Becket. So Henry could hardly take public offence. He couldn't have William punished or get annoyed at him for dedicating the Abbey to Thomas Becket. It really is a, a, a delightful, very, very subtle, beautiful little fuck you to Henry II. It's amazing. You know, like, dedicating a public building in Scotland to someone the monarchy had killed and then had to publicly pretend that they were mourning their death. It, do you know what it would have been like? It would have been like if they had dedicated the Scottish Parliament to Princess Diana. It was a fantastic, beautifully subtle fuck you to Henry II and possibly the only subtle thing that William managed to pull off throughout his 49-year reign. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you would like to uh, contribute to the podcast, if you've enjoyed listening to it, you can buy me a wee kind of pat-on-the-back coffee at Buy Me A Coffee. I'm on there at uh, Montebank History of Scotland. Or if you'd like to become a, a patron of the podcast so you can give me, like, the price of a cup of coffee every single month, then you can become a you can become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com. Again, it's the same thing, it's just at Montebank History of Scotland. I do really, really appreciate anything that you guys give me. What I try to do is each week on the podcast, I try and match what I've been talking about in the podcast to a whiskey and then um, send a bottle of that whiskey out to someone who deserves it. So it can be like a key worker, uh, an NHS staff worker, it could be just a patient parent or just a thoroughly sound person. Um, if you'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey, you just need to comment on the Patreon page or on the Buy Me A Coffee account or you can get me on my social media. I'm at Montebank Tours, the handle's um, Montebank Tours on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Just you can leave a comment, send me a DM, email me, whatever. Uh, nominate someone to get a bottle of whiskey and I just choose one at random. So, obviously, when we're talking about William the Lion, his greatest legacy was Arbroath Abbey, but that's a part of Scotland that doesn't have many distilleries. There's not much in, in Angus at all. It's where a lot of the grain is grown for the whiskey, but I digress. So anyway, here's my thinking, right? One of the things that Arbroath is most famous for is Smokies, which is these kind of like delicious smoked haddock, right? They're called Smokies. They're fantastic. And so here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to go for a whiskey that's nice and smoky as a kind of tribute to Arbroath, right? So I'm going with an Ard, an Ardbeg, which is a, a peated whiskey from Eilie. Um, and it's one of the most heavily peated. It's one of the smokiest. Uh, there's no dicking about with it. It's just bang. There's some smoke. There's some peatiness. There's bang full of flavour in a glass for you. Um, none of the, none of this kind of subtlety nonsense. And again, what could be more perfect if we're talking about William the Lion lacking a little bit of subtlety but completely full-hearted? Um, so yeah, that is my recommendation by Whiskey to go with this podcast. Thank you so much for listening once again, folks. I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast and I will see you all next week. Cheers now. Bye-bye.